You guys, this is our last chapel together. And, um, you know, I shared this with you guys a little bit at the beginning of my very first message, but camp is so personal for me. It was 22 summers ago that I came up to a camp with all the wrong motivations. But God had different plans for me. And God met me, and my life was powerfully changed, like transformed. That, that began the journey for me of following Jesus. And, and whenever I'm in camp settings like this, it, it feels emotional because I recognize that there were so many people that played a role in that camp experience for me happening, that it was the, the sound technicians, uh, Kayla and Jackson in the back, and it, it was some of the worship team, and it was camp directors, and it was lots of people, it was people plowing the snow, it's, it's the kitchen crew, it's, it was my youth pastor, and it, it was our small group leaders. And everyone played a role in giving me that experience and that opportunity to come to Christ. And so I, I just wonder if as students, can we just thank everyone that's been involved in making camp happen for us? It's been so significant. And I remember after I received Christ and began following him, my life began to change. Like, I remember I was obsessed with skateboarding. That's all I did. Skateboarding was my whole life. But I remember I would be, before I knew Jesus, I was skateboarding in lots of illegal places and I was running from the cops and then all of a sudden the Lord just started convicting my heart and saying, this is not representing me well. And I remember literally praying, and maybe some of you need to pray this prayer. I remember praying, Jesus, all I think about is skateboarding. It's my whole life. You are gonna need to change my heart because it has my obsession. It has captivated my attention. And the craziest thing happened. God began to change my heart. God began to align my life with his. But that didn't happen overnight. It was a process. And in fact, there were many days and still are many days where I don't feel God. And maybe some of you have fallen for the trap of thinking, well, if, if you're a Christian, then that means you always feel God. And the dangerous thing about rooting your understanding of reality in your feelings is your feelings can oftentimes mislead you. And one of, one of the things about being a disciple of Jesus is that we choose to operate in a different sense of reality. We, we, we choose to root ourselves in a different reality, and that is what God's word says is true. And so when Jesus in Matthew 28 says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then Jesus says this, he says, and surely I am with you always. Not sometimes. He doesn't say that he's, that he's with you when you feel it. He promises to be with you always. And so as disciples of Jesus, we choose to understand reality according to what God's word says is true. And so even when you don't feel like God is with you, followers of Jesus, we hold on to the truth that he always is. I remember 
when I was a freshman in high school, I, I was walking to school one day and, and I was just praying. I was going, God, my life belongs to you. Use me today however you want to. And I walked into class, into this conceptual physics class, which is like a fancy title for like not smart math kids. And that's the group I fit into. And I'm in conceptual physics, and in this class, we could sit wherever we wanted. And so I got there uh, pretty early and sat down, and we had a substitute teacher that day. And, and the substitute said, hey, uh, work on whatever projects you have. It's a free class. Just work on the projects you have. And I said, okay. And then the girl that sat next to me, her name was Heidi. And right as I was about to begin my work for that day, Heidi turned to me. And here's what you need to know about Heidi. Heidi was, at that time, Heidi was the president of the witchcraft club on our campus, okay? Didn't go to Valley Christian. Didn't go to a Christian school. Heidi was the president of the witchcraft club, and at that time, I was the president of our Bible club, so we were friends. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Heidi turned to me, and she said, Eric, I don't understand. Why do you believe in God? And I gotta tell you, I was nervous, I was anxious, I wanted to leave, I didn't know what to say, I felt overwhelmed, but then I remembered the prayer that I prayed. I said, God, today my life is yours, use it however you want. And so I did the very best that I could by the power of the Holy Spirit to just share with her the difference that Jesus had made in my life. And I'm convinced it wasn't a perfect presentation of the gospel at all, and I'm sure I messed up on some theological points. But I shared with her I stepped out in faith and said, this is who God has been in my life. This is what I'm learning in the scriptures. And I got to be honest with you, I don't remember much of high school. I don't remember where me and my friends sat for lunch. I don't remember what our favorite meals were. I, I don't remember what my grades were freshman year of high school. But I'll never forget Heidi. A few years later, I remember walking to school one day and saying, God, my life is yours. Use me however you want to. And as I was coming out of third period and heading to lunch, I remember walking by and there was this guy sitting in our quad area all by himself. And I just felt like I heard God whispering saying, I want you to go sit with him. And I kind of argued with God. I was like, God, I'm in high school. We don't do that. That's weird. People don't do that. That's strange. I just felt like God said, I want you to go sit with him. And so I walked over and I sat next to him. And I just put out my hand. I said, hey, man, my name's Eric. What's your name? And he turned away from me and opened up his backpack and grabbed out a piece of paper. And he started writing some stuff. And then he handed it to me and, and I read it. And it said, hi, my name's Joe. I'm deaf, so I don't like to talk, but we can write. And for a month, Joe and I shared lunch together every single day. And he told me about how he was an atheist, how he didn't even believe God existed because of the things that he had experienced in his life. Students, I don't remember the scores that I got on my SAT. I don't remember the big homecoming games. I don't remember all the dances or the songs that were played. I don't remember the essay questions that were on the college applications. I don't remember any of that stuff from high school. But I'll never forget Joe. I remember when I was looking at colleges to go to, and I flew up to, uh, with a friend of mine, we flew up to Spokane, Washington to look at a school, and, 
And on our flight home, we had a flight from Spokane to Seattle and then from Seattle to L.A., And on the flight from Spokane to Seattle, it was a small kind of a 60-seat airplane, and there was only about 10 or 15 of us on the plane, but to balance out the plane, we had to stay in our assigned seats. And so I was thinking as I was boarding the plane, man, I'm going to get to stretch out. This is going to be great. For some reason, as the Lord would have it, me and my friend, my friend Josiah was sitting on the window seat. I was in the aisle seat, and then we had another stranger sitting next to us. And as this guy was sitting next to us, I remember as the plane took off, he pulled out a magazine from his backpack and started to look at it. And I'll just say that the pictures in the magazine made me feel really uncomfortable. And I remember thinking to myself and even praying, God, I wish I had something to give him. I wish I had something that I could give him to to point him to you. My heart was burdened for this guy. After he put that magazine away, we began a conversation, and he, he shared with me about how he used to be a Christian. He used to follow Jesus, but, but not anymore. He had kind of fallen away. So we decided all three of us were going to eat dinner together in the Seattle airport before he was also going to L.A., so we thought we'd eat dinner together. And so we land, and we get to the Seattle food court, and, and there's just tons of restaurants. So we all get our own food, and then we meet, and I mean, it's just such a crowded airport. I remember so many people around us. And we sit down, the three of us, at this table. And right as we're about to eat, this guy walks up behind me that I've never seen before in my life and just taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around, and he's dressed in all black, and he hands me this wrapped thing. And he looks at me, and he's just like staring in my eyes. And he just said this. He said, God told me to give this to you. I remember Abe was like, this is creepy, like... Does this happen to you? And, and in an airplane, you're not supposed to accept packages from people, okay? Like, you just, you don't do that. But he said God, so I was like, okay, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. So I kind of am stunned, and I start to unwrap it, and, and inside is a book, a very specific book, that I had given to five of my friends that Christmas who had similarly to A been kind of wandering in their faith. And all of a sudden, it hit me, this book, this book was for Abe, just like I had prayed for. We had to quickly jump on our next flight, and, and I remember halfway through the flight, I was thinking, okay, I've got to give this to Abe once we get off the plane, and I, I want to write a note in this. I want to tell him about this miracle. And so I reached in my backpack to find a pen, and there was no pen in my backpack. But I was like, God, you're on a roll. Like, you've done some crazy stuff. God, would you put a pen in my backpack? Would you put a pen in my backpack so I can write this guy a note? And you guys, I reached into my backpack, and there was no pen. No pen at all. No pen in the backpack. But I felt like God was saying, Eric, I don't need you to write this down. And so we got off the plane, and and I handed the book to Abe, and I said, Abe, I think this is God's way of telling you that he loves you, and that he sees you, and that he wants a relationship with you. You see, I'm absolutely convinced that God desires for our following of him to be full of adventure. And I'm totally convinced that more often than not, I bow out. That I say, you know what, God, I I just kind of want a comfortable, easy life. But that is not what God has designed us for. 
And if you only rely on your feelings, they're going to tell you to stay safe, to play it easy. But if you choose to define reality according to God's word, he is going to call you to step out of your comfort zone. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. you got to start to trust Jesus with your life. And so what does that look like? Here's the question I want us to wrestle with, and I hope today is really practical and helpful. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to take some notes on this so you can discuss this with your group later. But here's the question I want to go after. How do we live in a way that reveals Jesus to the world? Many of us have had a powerful encounter with God this weekend. That his Holy Spirit has shown up in a special way for us. But how do we go back to our places of origin? How do we go back to our homes, to our families, to our communities, to our churches, to our schools, to our friend groups? How do we go back and how do we live in a way that reveals Jesus to the world? You know, one of my favorite Christmas songs is Mary Did You Know. I love that song. Kind of exploring what did Mary know, but I think there's actually a more important question that every single one of us needs to answer, and it's this church, meaning the body of Christ, not a building, the church, the body of Christ, church, did you know? Or church, have you forgotten that if you have placed your trust in Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to him, if you have made him the Lord of your life, scripture promises that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. If you're a follower of Jesus. So in light of that, how do we live in a way that reveals Jesus to the world? Number one, I want you to write this down. Number one is this. Committing to community reveals Jesus. Committing to community reveals Jesus. We're going to spend a lot of time finishing Ephesians chapter 4, which has been our anchor passage this entire weekend. Paul in verse 25 says this, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And it's so cool that this was written 2,000 years ago, and yet Paul exposes and identifies the temptation that we all face. It is so much easier to put on a front. Paul's day, they didn't have filters, but we've got filters. We can curate images and pictures and scenes of ourselves to portray some kind of image, and it's false. And Paul says, if you'll commit to community, he says, we are one body. Did you know that? That your youth group, your church, that you are one body. And this is one of the most powerful things, one of the most powerful ways the church can represent Jesus in the world because right now, 
If you've been living under a cave and you didn't know this, we, we live in a very polarized culture. That there are a lot of lines being drawn, a lot of us and them. And it's so tempting for people to place you in some kind of group. Are you conservative or liberal? Are you Republican or Democrat? Are you for this or for that? Even ethnic groups. Did, did you know that, that Christianity is the most diverse religion in the entire world? I heard somebody once say, you know, Christianity is just a white man's religion. There couldn't be anything farther from the truth. In fact, atheism is a white man's religion according to statistics. Christianity is the most diverse global movement in the history of the world. It reaches farther linguistically, ethnically, culturally, nationally than any other religion. And what's incredible is that what unifies us is not the way we vote. What unifies us is not the nation we live in. What unifies us is not the bank account amount that we have. What unifies us is that we are all sinners in need of grace and have been saved by the good love of Jesus Christ. That through his, through his death and resurrection, we know our value and our worth And I'm just convinced that there are so many Christians that are living as severed body parts out and about trying to thrive as Christians. And you can't because you were made to be one body. The Reverend Dr. Tony Evans, he has this incredible quote. He says this, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian and they are absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. But you don't have to go home to be married, but stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. That's a word. That's good. Some of you students, you are trying to follow Jesus all by yourself. Did you know that in the family of God, there is no such thing as an only child? You've been given the greatest gift, brothers and sisters in Christ, to help you. And yet, oh, okay, we're going to go here for a second. And yet, there's some of you who you slide into each other's DMs, and the way you talk to each other is no different than atheists. That some of you ask for nude pics as if that's totally acceptable, that's sinful, and you need to repent. That some of you gossip about each other, tear each other down. You do Satan's work for him. And it's no wonder the watching world looks at Christians and says, man, they bite each other. They tear each other apart. Why would I ever want to be a part of that group? Paul says, you got to take off the mask. You've, you've got to You've got to speak truth to each other. You've got to love each other. You've got, to, you've got to bring your real broken self to each other so that we can support each other and hold each other accountable and help point each other to Jesus because we are one body. I understand sports are important and your extracurriculars are important. I get all of that. 
But can I just ask you a question? What is the priority, Harvard or heaven? And I'm not saying you can't have both. Okay, don't hear me saying that. Don't tell your parents, he said, go to junior college. I mean, that's what I did, but I'm not saying that for everybody. I'm just saying, what's the priority of your life? Is it to be in the MLS or the NBA? Is it to go to some prestigious school or is it to be intimate with Jesus? Make your youth group, your church, your community, your number one priority and you will reveal Jesus to the world. Number two, number two. How do we live in a way that reveals Jesus to the world? Number two, dealing with your stuff. Dealing with your stuff reveals Jesus. Let's keep going with Paul in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Paul acknowledges that life is hard and painful. And there's a lot of things that are going to make you angry. And probably the, the number one thing that's going to make you angry is going to be relational wounds that you're going to experience in this life. And some of you have had more relational wounds than you should have ever have experienced. The question is, what do you do with those? When somebody makes you angry, when somebody hurts you, when somebody sins against you, what do you do? Well, Jesus taught us. And Jesus didn't just kind of speak in parables. Like there were times where Jesus just said, hey, I'm just going to cut to the chase. Like this is what you do. Matthew 18 is one of those moments. In Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And a little caveat here is, is if you're wondering, okay, does that mean that we can gossip about them? Does that mean we can block them? Does that mean we can remove them from our lives? Does that mean we can talk crap about them? No, no, no. Remember, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. He didn't necessarily go to them. They weren't his support network. But he loved them and he served them. And he tried to live out the gospel in front of them. You see, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, one of the things that God is going to call you to do is forgive people that have hurt you. And forgiving people is hard. Corey Ten Boom was an incredible, amazing woman. During World War II, her entire family sheltered Jews. And then they were eventually caught and they were taken to a concentration camp. While they were in that concentration camp, Corey Ten Boom's sister, Betsy, and her father were tortured and brutalized so much that they eventually died. But Corey Ten Boom seemed to survive. And because her whole family were followers of Jesus, and because she was a Christian, she chose to tell her story all around the world about God's love. She literally lived through one of the most horrific 
things we could ever imagine that's ever happened in humanity. And, and yet she goes on a tour to tell people about God's love. But then something happened that she never anticipated. And in her book, The Hiding Place, she tells this story. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men. The heaps of clothing. Betsy's pain-blanched face. This man came up to me as the church was emptying and he was beaming and bowing and he said, how grateful I am for your message, Frolin, to think as you say, he, talking about Jesus, has washed my sins away. She's looking at the man responsible for the deaths of her sister and her father. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges. But on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. Incredible. I remember after I shared this story at church a couple Sundays ago, a man came up to me crying and, and he said, when my mom was passing away, I had the opportunity to hear her final words. And he said, the last thing that my mom ever said to me was this, forgive everyone. Forgive everyone. Forgive everyone. She literally repeated the same thing three times and then she passed away. Why, why is this such a big deal? It's because when we choose to not forgive, there's some ugly friends that come with unforgiveness. I, I need Brennan and Tommy. Is that right? Brennan and Tommy, did I get that right? Come on up here, guys. I need you guys to help me with something real quick. Okay, here we go. So can you hold that and kind of wrap it around your arm just once? There we go. 
There we go. And can you come over here? Can you wrap that part around your hand? There we go. There we go. There we go. Okay, cool. You guys are pretty strong. Okay, cool. All right, here we go. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that I know about unforgiveness. And it's why, especially in the New Testament, there's such an emphasis on forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. Why is that so important? And I, and I know there are people in your life who, who have hurt you and who have wronged you. And who you, at this point, frankly, are not interested in forgiving. Why should you consider forgiving them? And why did Jesus command it? It's because when you choose not to forgive, a bunch of ugly friends show up. They go by the name bitterness and resentment and cynicism and being jaded and becoming more and more angry. And the problem with unforgiveness, here guys, go ahead and spread out a little bit. The problem, and I want you guys to just kind of, I'm going to try to walk forward, but I want you guys to try to stop me, okay? The problem with unforgiveness is that you begin to live resentful and bitter lives. That all of a sudden you're kind of hard-hearted and, and as you're trying to move forward in your life, as you're trying to have healthy relationships with people, as you're trying to love, you'll realize you just can't get there. That it's almost like every relationship you start within a few months, they don't want to be around you anymore. That you realize your heart is so full of resentment and bitterness and the problem is you're trying to move forward but the ugly friends of unforgiveness won't let you. And you may even say, well, you know what? Resentment is holding on to me and bitterness is holding on to me and, and there's nothing I can do. But maybe you're holding on to them. And maybe the first step forward in experiencing freedom from the pain that you've experienced is for you to let go. Because in the Greek, in the original language, the word forgive literally means to let go, to no longer hold on to. As gospel-centered Christians, our ability to forgive isn't dependent on ourselves. We forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. And so I'm not saying there's not more work to do with the pain and the trauma and the heartbreak that you've experienced. But what I am saying is probably your first step is to choose to forgive. Can you guys give it up for these guys? Thanks, dudes. All right, number three. Number three, how do we reveal Jesus in a way, or how do, we, how do we live in a way that reveals Jesus to the world? Number three, setting an example with your life reveals Jesus. Setting an example with your life reveals Jesus. Let's look at how Paul continues. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You see, if you could summarize these sections, Paul is essentially saying that what we do with our hands and what we say with our mouths tells a watching world what we actually believe about Jesus. What you say with your mouths, but also what you do with your hands, how you live your life, tells a watching world what you actually believe about Jesus. And so here's just a few questions to consider. What example are you setting with your actions and words? If you couldn't speak for a whole day, would anyone know you're a Christian? What about if, if we could only hear the things that you and your friends talk about during lunch? Would anyone know that you are a Christian? One of the dangers of coming to camp is we can have this kind of spiritual high experience with Jesus where we really feel him, where, where it feels like we're face to face with him. And then we can go down the mountain and nothing changes in our lives. It's almost as if, as Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, Jesus speaking says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Did you hear what Jesus said? He's knocking at the door of your heart. He's knocking at the door of your heart. And maybe this winter camp, you open that door and you got to see Jesus like you've never seen him before. But the danger of camp is that we can leave Jesus on the doormat and think that's where he wants to stay. That camps can be this moment where you open the door and you see Jesus and you're connecting with him and you're interacting with him and it's amazing. But the reality is you have still left him on the doormat and that is not where Jesus wants to be. That Jesus says, I'm knocking on the door of your heart, and when you open it to me, I want to come inside. More than that, Jesus wants to become the homeowner of your life. Who honestly holds the keys to your life? Because I know this to be true, students. Jesus is a far better homeowner than you could ever be. And one of the ways you set an example and reveal Jesus to the world is to not just keep him on the doormat and open it every once in a while on Sundays or on Wednesdays or at winter camp or summer camp or on a missions trips. Do not just open the door, say hi to Jesus while he's on the doormat and then close it and go on living your life. That is not what he wants. He wants to be invited in and he wants to take up shop. He wants to own the home. One of the greatest threats to the gospel advancing is people who know the gospel but don't live it. People who know the gospel and don't share it. People who know the gospel intellectually but have not allowed Jesus into every part of their lives. And so when he convicts you, don't get offended. See it as an act of grace and mercy. 
When your youth pastor or small group leader calls you on something and says, hey, this part of your life, this isn't in alignment with scripture. Don't block them. Don't call them toxic or harmful. But receive that. And I'm talking about from leaders that love you and that care about you and that protect you and keep you safe, obviously. But receive those things. Because they want the best for you and Jesus wants you to set an example and that will reveal him to the world. And then lastly, number four is this. Building God's kingdom, not your own, reveals Jesus. Building God's kingdom, not your own, reveals Jesus. Let's look at our last verse in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Here is what I call the gospel fuel for your life. The gospel fuel for your life is this. Jesus will never ask you to do for others what he has not already done for you. So when it's hard to forgive someone, you go back to the gospel fuel. You remember that Jesus forgave you. When it's hard to love your enemies, you remember that Jesus loved us while we were his enemies. When it's hard for you to stop some struggle, you remember that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we have. Though he did not sin, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Allow the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the truth of scripture to be that which fuels you. Paul talked about the power of the gospel in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, it is the power that we need to live a life that reveals Jesus to the world. And you can do this. By him, you can do this. Don't wait till you're an adult someday. There was a student in our youth group. She was a sophomore when this happened. Her name's Abigail, and uh, we call her Abby. And Abby was on a little urban missions trip that we were doing in our community. And Abby went to a park and started to talk with this seventh grade girl named Alexis. And Alexis had never heard about Jesus before, had never read the Bible or heard about the Bible before. And so Abby, a sophomore, is talking with Alexis, a seventh grader, and just sharing with her some of the verses we talked about last night. John 3.16 and 1 John 1.9 and Romans 10.9. And, and after Abby had shared her testimony with Alexis, Alexis decided to surrender her life to Christ. This sophomore girl led this seventh grade girl to Christ, but, but it gets crazier. About a week after that, Abby called Alexis to check in on her because she had given her a Bible and told her some things to read. And so Abby called Alexis and said, hey, how, how have you been doing in your faith? How's your Bible reading been going? And, and Alexis said, it's been awesome. And I, I've been starting to tell my friends about Jesus. And, and, and then this girl, Alexis, she said, I have five of my friends over at the house right now. Could I put you on speakerphone and you just tell them about Jesus like you told me about Jesus? So she put her on speakerphone. Abby told over speakerphone the, the gospel and the five girls surrendered their lives to Christ. And Abby, Abby isn't a Bible scholar. She's not a youth pastor. She's not even an adult. She's a half-brained teenager like you. 
And I don't mean that offensively, but literally your frontal lobes haven't even developed. You're half brain, so we're going to give you lots of grace. Because we love you. I remember, I'll close with this story. I remember um, literally just a year ago, I got asked to officiate a wedding in uh, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I know somebody had to do it, and I just said, yes, Jesus. If you're calling me to that, I'll do it. And so I flew out to there with my wife, and we officiated this wedding. And on the flight home, I got a lot of plane stories, I'm realizing. Anyway, um, I was sitting in the middle seat, and my wife was in the aisle, and then there was this guy sitting next to us. And and it was about a three-hour flight, and two hours into that flight, I just sensed God was telling me, hey, I want you to turn to the guy sitting next to you, and I want you to tell him that I love him. And again, I was like, oh, Lord, I don't know. Um, This is like when we still had to wear masks. And I'm like, we're not even going to be able to hear each other. And when you're in a plane, people can hear each other. It's just going to be awkward. I don't know. And I remember he was on his phone the entire flight, playing this game on his phone the entire flight. And so I made a deal with God. I said, okay, God, if you really want me to tell him that you love him, make him put his phone down so that I could have a conversation with him. And I opened my eyes. And guess what? he was still on his phone, which was awesome for me, right? I was like, yes, this was for somebody else. And then I was turning over to my wife to help her with something on her computer, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this guy put his phone down. And I want to confess to you as a pastor, my response was not, holy, amazing God. It was like, oh, frick, are you serious? Because <laughs> I just didn't know how I was going to go, and I felt weird about it, and But I just turned to him and I said, hey, my name's Eric. What's your name? And he said, my name's Jose. And he was talking really loud. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) this is not going to go well. What if he's an atheist? I don't know. And, and, And I said, hey, I know this sounds really crazy, but I just felt like I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. And I feel like Jesus was telling me to tell you that he loves you. And the guy starts crying. And he says, he starts talking really loud and he goes, I've had five times in my life where I've been at the end of my rope and at each one of those moments, God has shown up and and told me that he loves me and that I'm not alone and I'm literally at one of those places right now in my life and I needed this. And people around us are looking and I'm like, face forward, like don't, there's... (laughs) You see, you guys, you can decide right now whose kingdom will you spend your life building? Will it be your kingdom? Or will it be God's kingdom? I love to read, mostly Twitter, because I feel more accomplished, because I feel like I've read more, but there was this quote that I read on Twitter years ago. It said this, start living today the stories you want to tell on your 83rd birthday. Let that sink in for a minute. Start living today the stories you want to tell on your 83rd birthday. Because at some point, you'll get to a point in your life where you're reflecting and you're telling stories about your life. And I just want to ask you as we close out chapel, what kind of story do you want to tell? And I'm here to tell you that I've tried living all kinds of other stories. I've tried building my own kingdom. 
And I have found time and time again that there is one great story, that there is one great kingdom, and that if you will choose, like I'm trying to choose, to align my life with his great story, to build his kingdom, be a part of building his kingdom and not my own kingdom, you will live the kind of life that you're going to tell stories about, and you will live the kind of life that you were destined to live. One that will literally echo into eternity. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each one of these students who have experienced camp with us this weekend. I thank you for the work by the power of your Holy Spirit that you have done in each one of our lives. God, I know it's not an accident that any of us came up here this weekend. And I know that this is only the beginning. That you don't just desire for us to kind of open the door and say hi to you and leave you on the doormat. But you want to come into our lives, occupy every part of our lives, transforming every bit of us. So that we might be recrafted. By you, God, our craftsmen, for your glory. Help us in that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.